Next time you're out strolling, late at night, in the German village of Apolda, sometime in the 1880s, you'd better keep your augen peeled. Lurking on the streets and alleys of that town was one of the most dreaded specters in all of folklore. Crap, there he is now. With his no-nonsense gait, his teeth, his piercing glare, his ruthless efficiency, his readiness to pounce, even stout-hearted citizens cringed when hearing the name Doberman. No, no, not the dog. She's cool. I'm talking about the guy with her. Louis Doberman. Carl Friedrich Louis Doberman. A man whose job description is enough to cause birds to scatter and nuns in old movies to cross themselves. He was a tax collector and dog catcher, part of his task being to destroy and skin local strays. And if that weren't enough, he was also hired to patrol the street at night in search of unsavory characters. In short, he held the Prince of Darkness concession for the greater Apolda area. As a breeder, Herr Doberman recognized the value of an imposing but dependable canine to join him on his rounds. When he was unable to find just the right dog for the job, he built one. More accurately, he bred one. Though conjecture abounds, there's no consensus as to which breeds contributed to the larger, less refined version of the dog that now bears Doberman's name. Historians mention the Black and Tan Terrier, a forerunner of the Manchester Terrier. Also mentioned are the German Pinscher, the Rottweiler, and smooth-coated herding dogs. Recognized by the AKC in 1908, the Doberman Pinscher has been an enduring favorite among the working breeds. They distinguished themselves in war as part of the Devil Dogs Marine Unit in World War II, and are world-renowned for their work in policing and security, search and rescue, as therapy and service dogs, and as competitors in dog sports. In the early 1950s, a Doberman named Storm won Westminster's Best in Show two years running. In what of Herr Doberman? Visit the lovely village of Apalda today, and you might come across the Doberman Denkmal, or Monument. It's a bronze statue, not of Louis Doberman, of course, but of his eponymous dogs at play. Eponymous. Now there's a $5 word. As legacies go, call it a shoestring catch. Louis Doberman might have faded into tax collector infamy. Instead, he fixed his handle to one of the world's beloved dog breeds. Well played, LD. Well played. I'm Bud Bacone. This is a show about the individuals who brought about great dog breeds. We're talking to you, Jack Russell, with a minor in how famous breeds came to be named for individuals. All right, fetch! Must be how I say it.
down and back. Tales from the AKC Archives. We told the story not so long ago of the Doberman's storied war service. Maybe Herr Doberman's breed took a bit of a bad rap during World War II with the handle Devil Dogs. Unlike their ancient counterparts, it was often their noses that saved lives by sniffing out unseen enemy positions. Not that they didn't look formidable. The sleek, muscular Doberman with its noble athletic profile gives it a ready-for-action look, somewhat missing from a Yorkie or Maltese. And we also shared the wartime story of the German Shepherd Dog, whose backstory in many ways parallels that of the Doberman. Both breeds came about in late 19th century Germany. Both were recognized by the AKC in 1908. And, as in the case of the Doberman, the German Shepherd came about by the work of one person. And if you happen to be at a dog show in Karlsruhe, Germany in the late 1800s, you might have run into him. He was Captain Max Emil Friedrich von Stefanitz dog breeder, and career cavalry officer. It was at this show that the captain noticed a medium-sized yellow and gray wolf-like dog. It was a supple, powerful sheep herder, a dog with endurance and intelligence. Von Stefanitz purchased the dog, renamed it Harand von Grafrath, regarded as the first German shepherd dog. The captain's breeding philosophy was guided by the phrase utility and intelligence. Beauty was not a priority. Retiring from the cavalry in 1898, von Stefanitz refined the breed by crossing various strains of shepherd dogs from the northern and central districts of Germany. His work gave the German shepherd its now famous qualities, intelligence, agility, speed, stealth, and its overall air of firm authority which for a working dog were highly portable skills. And that was a good thing. Because his dog was bred for herding. At a time when urban industrialism was on the rise and the demand for shepherds and their dogs was on the wane. That's when von Stefanitz went to work, glad-handing leaders of police forces and working dog clubs to establish a set of tests around tracking formal obedience, and protection work. Soon enough, his breed was repurposed and rebranded. Effectively enough that an American dog lover might be forgiven for not connecting German shepherds with the herding of sheep. With its introduction to America in the early 20th century, the German shepherd dog was a hit, especially with the rise of film icon Rin Tin Tin. For most, the name von Stefanitz would fade from memory, but his four-legged legacy was secured. As world wars came and went, when Americans eschewed all things German, the breed remained popular. Its name? Not so much. Some breeders and retailers quietly shortened the name to Shepherd Dog, and when the question of Rin Tin Tin's breed came up in conversation, the studio would, uh, oh, hey, look, a bird. today from the book of Isaiah, chapter 56. This is St. James Church in Swimbridge. Hey, uh, 
Swinbridge? It's not far from Barnstable. Oh. It's 1833. Across the channel, von Stefanitz wasn't yet a gleam in his father's auga. And the fellow up there making with the sermon, that's Parson John Russell, but you can call him Jack. Sir. Uh, Josh, help me out. Would y'all get you back next Sunday? Legend had it that Parson Russell tended to keep his sermon short by Victorian standards, and that he'd even keep a horse saddle just outside the church to take off hunting at the earliest possible moment. His calling may have been the church, but his passion was hunting. Like so many English gentlemen, Russell was a fox hunter and a dog breeder. A decade and a half earlier, while studying at Oxford, he acquired his first fox terrier from a milkman. He named the dog Trump. Would that be the same? No, just a coincidence. Raised in a hunting family, Russell came to be known as the sporting parson. He became the breeder behind the eponymous Russell Terrier, a hardworking dog, swift enough to run with the hounds, but tough enough to go to ground and bolt prey. Today, the AKC recognizes two distinctly separate breeds, the Russell and the slightly more squared-off Parson Russell Terrier. In popular culture, Russell Terriers hit their stride through the past generation on television, in shows such as Frasier and Wishbone, and in films such as Crimson Tide and The Mask. With that, they quickly gained a popularity that caused new owners to learn the hard way just how energetic and tireless this breed is. Oh, and uh, a fun fact. A portrait commissioned by King Edward VII of Trump, the dog, is said to hang in Sandringham Castle. Elsewhere in England, Scotland, and Ireland, individuals of the bluest blood have brought about several of today's popular breeds. Not only is the Gordon Setter an athletic, outdoorsy birding dog, it affords me another chance to say eponymous. The Gordon behind the dog was Alexander Gordon, the fourth Duke of Gordon, and confirmed setter fancier. Some two centuries ago, he founded a kennel of black and tan setters at, where else, Gordon Castle. Though his early dogs looked more like the English setter, crosses with the flat-coated black and tan collie bloodhounds, black pointers, and solid black setters helped mold the Gordon Setter breed into what it is today. The Gordon Setter was among the breeds recognized when the AKC was founded in 1884. The Celium Terrier is named for the Celium Estate on the Seal River in southwestern Wales, where this sturdy, confident terrier was once bred. The father of the breed was an army captain named John Edwards. In the mid-1800s, he had retired at age 40 and spent the rest of his life developing his dream dog. The Sealy's primary purpose was to work in support of the captain's otter hound pack. Otters in those days were considered pests who depleted the fish population on sprawling estates like Sealyham. Edwards bred his terrier to be strong and tough enough to dig razor-clawed otters out of their lairs. The breeds Captain Edwards employed while refining the Sealy are unknown, but the result is a fearless, hard-working hunter who is also a delightful companion by the fireside. A three-time Best in Show winner at Westminster, 
the Sealy's profile was boosted by Hollywood A-list owners such as Humphrey Bogart, Gary Cooper, and Cary Grant. From Invernessshire in the Scottish Highlands comes another fan favorite, the Golden Retriever, a breed that would not likely have come about without the effort of one man, whose name is almost as fun to say as eponymous, Lord Dudley Tweedmouth. It was there a century and a half ago that Lord Tweedmouth bred a dog suited to the rainy climate and rugged terrain of the area. He crossed his yellow retriever with a breed now extinct, the Tweed Water Spaniel. Now, mix in some Irish Setter and Bloodhound and Shazam, the Golden Retriever. Admired by American dog fanciers since the early 20th century, the breed's popularity really took off in the 1970s, the time of President Gerald Ford and his golden named Liberty. Before we leave this part of the world, two honorable mentions. The first is the only AKC-recognized dog named for a fictional character. Strictly speaking, it's neither eponymous nor the work of a single breeder. Two centuries ago and change, Sir Walter Scott published his novel Guy Mannering. In it was a farmer who owned six terriers, Alt Pepper, Ald Mustard, Young Pepper, Young Mustard, Little Pepper, and Little Mustard. The character's name was Dandy Dinmont. Fiction, yes, but those six bright-eyed, long-backed earth dogs with those names were very real. Their owner was a friend of Sir Walter, a man named James Davidson. His dogs are revered today by dandy fanciers as the immortal six. It is said that every dandy alive today can be traced back to a dog named Old Ginger, sired by the aforementioned Old Pepper. With the exposure the breed received from Scott, who called it the Big Little Dog, the breed came to be known as Dandy Dinmont's Terriers. They would become a favorite from Roma to royalty, including confirmed dog lover Queen Victoria. Since antiquity, a serene, dignified giant had roamed the green hills of Ireland. When the Romans first beheld the Irish wolfhound, they were wonderstruck. It's the tallest of all breeds, with males standing to a maximum 32 inches at the shoulder on its hind legs it might stand seven feet tall. Ancient kings are said to have kept armies of them, for they were excellent big-game hunters, guardians, and companions. In 15th century Ireland, when wolves were overrunning the countryside, Irish wolfhounds were deployed. Two centuries later, wolves and other big game in Ireland had been hunted to extinction. With that, the wolfhound had worked itself out of a job. With little left to hunt, demand waned, as did the wolfhound population. In 1862, their cause was taken up by a Scot, Captain George Augustus Graham, who scoured the country for any remaining Irish wolfhounds. For 20 years, Graham patiently bred the dog, exhaustively scouring old prints and historical references, bent not on recreating, but rather restoring the breed. Today, the Irish wolfhound thrives, and the name George Graham is revered wherever Irish wolfhound fanciers gather. One man who, while he didn't invent the breed, 
almost single-handedly revived it. On the downside of being a country in the geographical heart of Europe is that over time, history tends to reinvent you. Case in point, today's Czech Republic, formerly Czechoslovakia, formerly Bohemia. Its turbulent days in the 1930s and 40s were not entirely bereft of happy stories. One was the advent of the Chesky Terrier, Chesky meaning Czech. Another breed brought about through the vision of one person. Frantisek Horak was a sportsman and geneticist who grew up hunting in the forests outside of Prague. In time, he began imagining which qualities might make up an ideal hunting dog. One that could go to ground and dispatch a rat, like a true terrier, but who could also work in packs like hounds on bigger game, while being as gentle and obedient at home as retrievers. If the Chesky looks something like a cross between a Scottish terrier and a Celium terrier, it's because that's pretty much what it is. They're tenacious workers, an adventurous playmate for kids, and a little more laid back and tractable than the usual terrier. Now, the Chesky is no small accomplishment for Frantisek Horak, who persevered through a world war and a communist revolution to breed his dream dog. In the late 1750s, a German immigrant named Johannes Plott arrived in North Carolina. Today, his legacy is twofold. Hikers today take delight in the Plott Balsams, a mountain range in the west of the state. His other enduring contribution is the Plott Hound. Unique among the six AKC Coonhound breeds, this hound descends not from the English Foxhound, but from five German Hanover Hounds Plott took with him to America. In the mountains, Plot and his hounds would hunt bears. His son, Henry, would breed the dog with local stock. The result was a big game hunter known originally as Plot's Hound. Today's Plot Hound, rugged and fearless with a mellow streak, is North Carolina's state dog. I'm high in the Swiss Alps, or more properly at a high altitude, about 8,000 feet above sea level in what is now the Swiss Alps, a thousand years ago. It's a time long before the invention of movable type, before Europeans colonized the Americas, even before The Simpsons first aired on Fox. So who besides me would dare traverse a mountain pass with snowdrifts as high as 40 feet? Pilgrims often from France and Germany bound for Rome. That's who. Fortunately, not far from here is a hospice founded by a priest called Bernard of Menthon, who, as St. Bernard, would breed that guy. St. Bernard's eponymous working dog, trained for mountain rescues, bounding across the drifts with a cask of brandy around its neck. It's a popular story but with only two paws planted in the truth. Myth one, St. Bernard never laid eyes on one of these gentle giants. It would be about six centuries before monks at the great St. Bernard hospice acquired their first St. Bernards. The dogs likely descended from the heavy Asian molosser brought over by the Romans. Myth number two is the one about the cask of brandy around the St. Bernard's neck. 
a concept aided and abetted, perhaps begun, Edwin Landseer, some of whose works adorn the AKC Museum of the Dog here in New York. An 1820 painting created when the artist was just 17, titled Alpine Mastiffs Reanimating a Distressed Traveler, shows two dogs tending to a snowbound man. One of the dogs leans over the man with a small cask affixed to its collar. As writer Matt Soniak has noted, Brandy, despite its reputation, is a poor choice for someone trapped in a blizzard. It causes blood vessels to dilate, blood to rush to the skin, and body temperature to decrease rapidly. Not to mention that the cask would interfere with the dog's scenting. Records kept through 1897 hold that St. Bernard dogs rescued more than 2,000 people, from lost children to soldiers in Napoleon's army. A typical St. Bernard modus operandi was for one dog to dig through the snow and lie on top of the stranded traveler, providing warmth, while another dog returned to the hospice to alert the monks. The dogs took many names over the centuries until the name St. Bernard was adopted in 1880. Before that, they were known by several names, including Alpine Mastiffs, Alpine Dogs, Hospice Dogs, and Barry Huns. That's a tribute to a dog, Barry, who 200 years ago was credited with saving 40 lives. So many of the world's most beloved dogs are the product of careful, patient breeding by many people over many years. But occasionally, a great breed is the product of years of painstaking work by an individual. Some are fondly remembered by generations of dog fanciers, others are forgotten, and some live on through their canine namesakes. They are the hobbyists, scientists, even tax collectors, who purpose-breed dogs who, in turn, make the world better. We hope you've enjoyed season one of Down and Back. Get your fill of dog sports and entertainment with the AKC TV mobile app until we return for another once around the American Kennel Club archives. Down and Back, tales from the AKC archives. Visit akc.org to learn more about all things dog and find bonus materials for this episode. Follow us on Instagram at American Kennel Club, on Twitter at AKC Dog Lovers, and let us know what you thought of the show. Founded many, many dog years ago, AKC is the recognized and trusted expert in breed, health, and training info. AKC is all about responsible dog ownership and dedicated to advancing dog sports. No humans were harmed while making this show.